Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for letting us finish another study, for bringing us through a challenging uh, scripture that calls us to think differently about who we are and to live differently in light of that. Father, you chose to bring us to the end of this story, this letter that Paul wrote, by focusing us on the warfare that is around us, ever present in our lives. And Father, I pray first a prayer for those who would hear this message, that you would forever protect them and guide them against the enemy as they walk with you. You strengthen them for the battles that lay ahead. And by your word, Father, you counsel them to understand why, in the goodness of your purpose, that we must face these trials. So that in our knowledge of why, we might put them to good use for our own sake and for your glory. I also pray, Father, for those who are suffering, those for whom the enemy has made a special effort and are targeted today, that they would see relief and that their trial would be brief. And in all these things, Father, we pray that Christ's return would put an end to this warfare sooner than later. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a little moment of celebration. Our seven-month study of Ephesians is coming to an end. By the way, if you're counting, that puts us, verse-by-verse ministry, at 41% of the Bible having been taught now at the end of Ephesians. I may be the only one who cares about that, but I have... I have a little personal goal there. And as such, it's only appropriate that we're reaching the climactic part of Paul's letter this morning. Up through the last series of chapters, we've been learning about ways that the Lord is strengthening the body of Christ because he wants us to be in the very best possible position to serve him. He keeps coming back to that in his teaching about this goal of standing before Christ and our judgment day with the potential to receive a good report. I've labeled this outlook, this Christian way of thinking, as having missional living. And that is the call of every Christian, to think missionally about why you do what you do. In Second Timothy, Paul compares the Christian mission to that of a soldier in military service, enlisted to please the ones who he serves. And like the military mission, the Christian soldier, our mission, requires preparation and sacrifice and submission to authority, which we just learned, and the right equipping. And like soldiers, we too are engaged in a battle, and we too have an enemy who is intent on preventing our success. And that final comparison, that of an enemy and of battle, is what leads us now into the final instructions of Paul's letter in chapter 6. Today, Paul is addressing the nature of of the battle that we face as we live missionally, and the formidable enemy who is set against us. Let's start in verse 10. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, so that you will not be or so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You can see as you look at verse 10 there that Paul's moving to his final point in this letter because he opens with the word finally, or you could probably translate it literally in Greek, it's as to the rest. Paul asked the church, be strong in the power of God's might. You remember earlier in this letter when we were looking at the metaphors Paul used to describe the life of a Christian, he used the metaphor of a walk the walk of a Christian. And we said it's because the life of a disciple of Christ is a journey of sorts. Y'all start your life with Christ, your journey with Him at some point, at a moment in faith, and then from that place, 
you begin to move forward in a new spiritual direction, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we're called to pursue that journey without any distractions, don't want to leave the road and go off into some alleyway, nor with any retreat. We don't want to work ourselves backward. Now you see Paul looking at that same subject, again, the life of a Christian, and now he's telling us that walk, it's not going to be a walk in the park, it's more like a march across a minefield. You're in the middle of a war. As you serve Christ, you're engaged in a battle. A war with a powerful enemy who opposes God and therefore he opposes us. So point number one today, if you're inclined to take notes, is that whether you knew it or not, the Bible says you are in a war with an enemy and that war will last your entire life on earth as a Christian. This is a battle that is raging even now, even in your home, even in this room right now. And you have to be prepared for that fight or else you will suffer losses. Just like any war, there are going to be days when everything seems to be calm at the western front. There won't be much going on. You won't feel the oppression of the enemy. and It may seem like an ordinary day. It may even feel like there's been a truce signed somewhere in heaven. But then on other days, it's going to feel like all hell has literally broken loose around you. Which reminds you that there is no truce possible with this enemy. That the lulls are just the calm before the next storm in this battle. Every Christian recognizes that life has ups and downs like this. Everyone has seen it in their life. But not every Christian recognizes that that pattern of up and down is proof to you that there is a spiritual battle taking place around you. They would attribute their, their ups and downs perhaps to just life's happenstance. You know, good luck, bad luck, the way things just go. Or maybe they never gave it much thought at all. That was certainly me early in my walk as a Christian. This kind of stuff seemed more appropriate for Hollywood or for comic books than for real life concern. So as a result, Christians who have that that limited understanding, they're moving through a battlefield, unequipped, unprepared, unable to engage the enemy in a productive way. And therefore they can't fulfill their mission. I mean, after all, how effective is a soldier who doesn't even know that a war is underway? Imagine a young man, for example, who's walking through a field alone. He's wearing just a t-shirt and some shorts. He's enjoying a nice summer day. But now imagine that across this field on the other side, there is an enemy thousands strong. They're wearing armor. They have battle axes. They have swords. They're riding horses. And they're coming in prepared to attack. On that day, the enemy has declared war. But that young man doesn't know it. He hasn't heard the news. So how long do you think he survives this battle? Would it matter how strong he was, personally? He's not stronger than steel, swords, and armor, is he? Would it matter how fast he was? You can't outrun a horse. Would it matter how smart he is? You can't outthink a vast army. He'd be just like the soldiers and sailors who lost their lives at Pearl Harbor in 1941. They were caught off guard and they were largely defenseless because they didn't even know the war was headed their way. They had no idea the war had already started. They were caught off guard. My point is obvious, right? No matter how strong you think you are, no matter how brave you are, no matter how smart you might be, you are way overmatched by an enemy in a war that's already underway. So your first defense, our first defense in this battle that we know is taking place is simply awareness. Recognition. That's why Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 3, Behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus said at the beginning of that verse, Behold, which is to say, pay attention. 
Recognize you are about to enter a battlefield in which the enemy has the strength of wolves and you only have the strength of sheep. How far do you think that fight goes? I mean, if you're just depending on your own strength, where do you think it goes? In fact, the enemy you and I face in this war is far too powerful for any of us to face in our own power. In verse 11, Paul says that we are to stand against the schemes of the enemy, the devil. The Greek word for schemes could also be translated craftiness. The enemy is crafty. He's smart. And what he means by that is this. He knows how to test the walls of your resistance to sin. He knows how to poke around until he figures out where your weakness is, and then he knows how to exploit it. He knows how to take advantage of your fear or your lust. He knows how to take advantage of your pride. He knows where those weak points are in all of us. He's crafty, and more than that, he's determined. He's going to get his way if he can. The Bible teaches us that all angels are more powerful than any single human being. And above that, Satan is the most powerful of all angelic beings. He's more powerful than any other single created being in the universe, according to Scripture. In fact, it was his power and his importance which were the very cause for him to rebel against God in the first place. We read this in Ezekiel 28, as God himself, speaking about Satan, describes his fall this way. Ezekiel 28:14, You were the anointed cherub who covers... And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Satan's original job in the heavenly realm, before he fell, was guarding the Shekinah glory of God on the mercy seat of the heavenly tabernacle. As a result of having that special position, the Bible says he sinned by trying to assume the place of God by actually seating himself on that mercy seat, taking the job of God if it were possible. And so he was cast down. Which means that today, friends, the most powerful created being in the universe is among us and against us. Because he's made himself an enemy of God and therefore an enemy of any who are aligned with God. You know, even other angels refuse to fight Satan. Even the other angels, they won't even dare to say a word against him, the Bible says. In Jude 9, we read this. Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael, if you don't know, the archangel Michael, he is the most powerful angel apart from Satan himself. So in the hierarchy of angelic beings, he'd be number two behind Satan in terms of created power. So you think that guy might have some hope to stand toe-to-toe with Satan. And yet Jude tells us that he had to rely on God's power to defeat the devil. So if the archangel Michael cannot defeat Satan by his power, then clearly you and I have no hope whatsoever to battle on our own. So how do you think your battle with Satan will go if you try to fight him on your own, in your own power? Let me suggest to you that would be an incredibly foolish strategy. And yet, that's the strategy I think most Christians follow, perhaps unknowingly, 
For they do no better than to simply go about their blissfully ignorant way with no one else, nothing else, to support them in the battle. Why am I giving us so much to be concerned about? Well, because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And in verse 12, Paul explains what the war against Satan is going to be like for any Christian. And it begins, he says, with this word, our struggle. Paul calls it our struggle, because friends, this is a shared experience in the body of Christ for every believer. No one in here is exempt from the battle. The enemy does not overlook anyone in here. He forgets none of us. He gives none of us any quarter. The only time any of us might feel any relief from his attack is because we're doing the work for him in how we remove ourselves from the battle. So the only question is, how much are we fighting back against this enemy? The Greek word for struggle there could also be translated wrestle. And if you've ever wrestled somebody, that is, whether in a sport or even if it's just a sibling on the living room carpet, if you've ever wrestled anyone, then you understand that wrestling is a constant struggle. The moment you stop resisting your opponent for even a second, the opponent will put you in a hold from which you cannot escape. And that's the intent here. Paul says we are called to accept and understand that Christian life is a struggle. If there was ever a moment in a sermon for amen, that might have been it. If you've been thinking it's only you, or that something's wrong for you in your life because your life is a struggle, friends, you're not reading the scriptures honestly. Christian life is a struggle. Paul says our struggle. And we have this struggle continuously because your enemy doesn't get tired. Your enemy doesn't give up. He's fighting for his very existence. And you stand in the way of what he wants. But it gets worse. The Christian struggle is against an opponent that Paul says is invisible. Our opponent doesn't possess flesh and blood, Paul says. Which is to say our enemy is a spiritual being, not a physical being. But nonetheless, the enemy uses the physical world as a tool, as his pawns, in order to prosecute the fight against us. So, for example, the neighbor's dog, who happens to start barking as soon as you put your head down on the pillow every night, that's not all that it seems to be. Or the dishwasher that breaks down right before you have a party for 50 people. That's not a coincidence. The spouse who tests your patience... The children who resist your authority, the co-worker who just loves to push your buttons every day at work. Friends, those trials and those disappointments of everyday life are not always what they seem to be. Now, let me just clarify. I'm not saying, ladies, that when you break your fingernail, that's spiritual warfare. Or guys, I'm not saying that every time the Spurs lose, that it's spiritual warfare. Although on that second point, I'm not so sure. What I am saying is this. The enemy can insert himself into everyday situations using the physical world. Things, animals, people. He can influence, he can assert himself in certain ways, and he does so to rattle us, or to tempt us, or to enrage us, or to drive us into impatience, or jealousy, into one form of sin or another. John 10.10 says, He works to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And he will use anything that we give him to accomplish that goal. He wants to steal your peace. He wants to steal your confidence, your joy, or your time, or your perseverance, or your faithfulness in some other way. He wants to kill your mind, feeding it with pornography or mindless entertainment. He wants to steal your body, drugs, alcohol, 
debauchery of various forms, unhealthiness in all its ways. He wants to steal your integrity. He wants to destroy testimonies. He wants to take away ministries. He wants to end marriages. He wants to end family relationships. He wants to get rid of churches and pastors. He wants to get rid of anything that stands in the way of him replacing God, which is his goal. And so if he can neutralize us, or if he can discourage us, or if he can tempt us into sin, or distract us with some kind of silly earthly pursuit, well, that means we're just one less soldier on the battlefield that he has to worry about. He knows he can't change your eternal destiny. But friends, that's not even his point. I think sometimes we get distracted by our own misgivings about what his goal is, and we think he's trying to separate us from Christ. No, he's not an idiot. He's crafty. He's not fighting against our salvation. He's not even really fighting against you personally when you get down to it. He's fighting God. But if he can neutralize you on the battlefield, well, then he's just one step closer to ultimate victory. So you matter to him, but only in a collateral damage sort of way. But those situations are even worse than you think, because Satan isn't fighting by himself. Paul says in verse 12 that we're not just fighting one enemy, we're fighting rulers, powers, and world spiritual forces, he said. What he's referring to is the hierarchy of demons that serve Satan in an army that is opposed to God. The Bible says in Revelation 12 that when Satan did fall, in the way we just looked at from Ezekiel, a third of the angelic realm decided to follow after Satan when he fell into sin rather than remain loyal to God. And they elected now to worship him as their leader rather than to worship God Almighty. So now, and we don't know how many these are, but we're told it's myriads, which is a simple word for thousands. It's uh, many, many demons, many, many fallen angels. Those countless number of demons now share Satan's fate and they share his mission to attempt to defeat God. Paul calls them rulers because they are responsible for some portion of the earth. Remember, Satan is a created being. He can only be in one place at one time. All the Christians around the world who are saying the devil made me do it, well, 99.9% of them are wrong if they're thinking about him personally, because he can't be in all places at once. He's finite. And so he needs help in accomplishing his work. And the fallen demons are his lieutenants. They are powers as well, Paul says, because like all angels, they have true power. They have true spiritual authority under Satan's direction. We could probably suppose that he assigns certain demons responsibility for certain regions of the fallen world, which Paul calls this darkness. That's the fallen world. They must have some degree of autonomy. They know their mission. They have certain orders. I mean, we can imagine some of this. There's a great book called This Present Darkness that you may know about. It's Christian fiction. I highly recommend it. It's a great book. Fiction, though it is, it's a great book for thinking about these things in new ways. And then Paul says they are a force of wickedness. The church of Ephesus was probably very acquainted with this force. In Paul's day, the book of Acts and other sources tell us that there was an unusually high degree of demonic activity in the city of Ephesus in this time. The city, as you know, was dotted by pagan temples. It was a headquarters or a a stopping point for a lot of worshipers. And with those pagan temples came demons, apparently, who were extremely active in opposing Paul and opposing the believers in Ephesus. But... Again, these demons were not visible. You walk through the streets of Ephesus, you wouldn't have seen the devil. You would not have seen his demons. They're not visible then. They're not visible now. Paul says they exist in heavenly places. You notice? That means they occupy a spirit realm. This is a realm, a place outside our human experience and our human perception. For all we know, they're moving around us now, perhaps in your home, perhaps even in this building. I read a good commentary that 
made mention that we always assume that the place you find your demon is in the topless bars and the, the back alleys where crimes are taking place. That's where demons hang out. And the commentator said, they don't need to be there. That's already been solved. Those are already going the way they want. They spend their time in churches on Sunday and so on. But we know they exist. We know they're moving around. But more than that, evidence, both personal and scripture, would suggest they can prey on your thoughts and your emotions. They can influence the physical world in calamities of one kind or another. They use the physical world. They use physical things, including people, to do their bidding. And that's why Paul wants you and I to understand that though we contend with flesh and blood at times, we're not warring against that flesh and blood. They are not our true enemy. They are unwitting pawns. They too are collateral damage in this war. So on that day, for example, that you make a pledge to yourself, you're going to study your Bible at lunch. This is the day I'm going to make time at lunch to study my Bible. And it just so happens that on that day, your boss decides to schedule that lunchtime meeting. He's a pawn of the enemy. Or the day you decide you're going to get the family up extra early because we're going to make it to church on time today. And that's the day the kids are impossible. And the car, the battery is dead. Or all the other things that you may have experienced. Right? That's spiritual warfare. Have you ever wondered, couples, why the tendency to fight with your spouse is much greater in the car on the way to church than it is at any other day of the week? Is it just me? <laughs> uh, today is a good example in my life. My wife's not here because she wasn't feeling well. Yesterday, as I'm trying to prepare this, my dog is so ill in the morning throwing up constantly, we had to take her to the vet and have an IV given to her and some other stuff to get her well. And then this morning on the way up, I-35 is closed. I've got these guys doing double backup on the recording because I'm not confident the enemy is going to give us a chance to have one good recording of this. Am I being paranoid? Maybe. But you've got to understand, if this war is true, as the Bible says it is, and if it exists in an invisible realm, as the Bible says that it does, who is the more naive? The one who says, I'll believe it when I see it, when we're told we won't see it, Or the one who looks at circumstance through the lens of Scripture and comes to recognize that not all is as it seems that the enemy is at work. Paul says you will not see him coming because he works in a heavenly place, in the realm outside our perception. But we can certainly see the effect of his work. And when you see the effect of his work, when you can make the connection that what's happening to me right now is not chance, it's not random, and it is in fact a war, then you have an opportunity to respond to that moment with spiritual insight. Otherwise, what you do is you walk into the trap that Satan sets and you give him exactly what Satan wanted. The contentiousness with a spouse leads to hurtful words rather than to a calm recognition that, wait a minute, honey, there's something going on right now. Let's pray. Or the child that seems to be disruptive right at the moment you needed to have an important spiritual conversation with your spouse And so you fly off the handle and you're exasperated and there's hurtful exchanges there. Again, that's what the enemy wanted. Or the moment, as I've had my case so often, when I sit down on my computer to study, that's when the texts and the emails and something else is happening and I have to think to myself, do I push that aside or do I get distracted from what I'm here to do? By the counsel of Scripture, we can know what to do. And that's point two this morning. Point two is we face a specific, powerful enemy who commands a vast force of wickedness. He operates in ways we barely understand, and he possesses capabilities superior to our own. And therefore, we have absolutely no chance whatsoever in this battle if we enter it ignorantly or if we depend on our own power to carry the day. So point two is that this enemy can only be fought in an unconventional way. 
And scripture tells us, stand firm in our walk of faith and resist him. So that begs the question then, what is the solution to such an opponent? Paul says in verse 13, we have to stand in the Lord's power in a very specific sense. Verse 13, he says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Paul calls it all the armor of God. Armor, as you can imagine, just refers to spiritual protection, something afforded by God. He gives it to us through certain spiritual disciplines. And by relying on these spiritual disciplines in the midst of battle, you gain a measure of defense and a measure of protection from the enemy. The power to do any of this is God's power. He makes it available by His Spirit working in and through us. And if so, then we have to acknowledge, friends, that God's will determines how the battle will go. Can we make any other conclusion than that? If it's His power? That is to say this, the enemy's attack... His degree of success, the extent of damage that we suffer, that's all in God's hands. The only question is our response and whether we gain the benefits of the attack. It's helpful to remember the story of Job at about this point in this teaching. Remember Job, you may not have studied the book, but the background on his story is generally known. It's pretty easy to remember. He was an upright guy. He was a man of righteousness. He was God-fearing in his day. But it was because he was that kind of man that God himself suggested to Satan that Satan attack this man in such a way to disrupt or disturb his faithfulness. God put the test before Satan. See if you can make this man be unfaithful. And as a result of what God allowed Satan to do in Job's life, Job's entire family died. There's more, but before you go to step two, imagine that in your own life. All your children, your children's spouses, everyone, gone. Then he took away his entire livelihood his productive business, his income. Now you're destitute and you're alone. And then he personally afflicted Job with illnesses and distress. Now you can't even be comfortable in your mourning. God let Satan do that. In fact, God suggested Satan go after Job. Clearly, then, Job's righteousness did not prevent Satan's attacks. Do you see that? In fact, they are the reason that God brought attack into his life. God allowed Satan those victories. Why? Well, ultimately to test Job so that as Job was tested, he would respond showing himself faithful. And by his faithful response, he can then be rewarded and God is glorified against Satan's lies. You want to know how Job responded to all of that? You can sum it up with one verse out of the whole book. Job thirteen fifteen. Job says, speaking of God, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. You know, what's interesting about that verse is, if you had looked at Job's life at the point he spoke these words, that's all he had left. That's it. That's all he had. His own life was really the last thing anyway. He basically said, you've taken 98% of it. Take the last 2%. I'm still going to hope in you. Job said he still had faith and hope in the Lord. And he says, I would argue my ways before him, which is a way of saying, I am confident that I'd be vindicated before you in the end, even though all these things came to me. 
So remember, friends, no matter how much ground the Lord lets the enemy get in your life, he isn't taking away your eternal hope. The enemy cannot touch the thing that is most precious anyway. The rest of it is all going away sooner or later, one way or another. First John says the spirit that is in you is more powerful than the one that is in the world, speaking of Satan. And Jesus himself declared that nothing can pluck you out of his hand. If you understand that, and as you look at the the losses that pile up in your life as you walk with Christ, they don't become argument against faithfulness. They don't give you reason to question God's pleasure in your life. They're all for the same ultimate outcome, to test our mettle, to understand if we have what we claim to have, which is a hope that transcends what this world offers. Do you love God because you're happy and peaceful and you have all that you want, or do you just love him, period? The only way to know is if I take away some of those other things, and then we see where your heart is, right? God does that sometimes. Thankfully, he doesn't turn us all into Job, but he's done it to Job, he can do it to us. So go into the battle knowing Christ has already won the ultimate victory. That's the spiritually mature perspective you bring to life's trials. Don't mourn the earthly things he's taken. Value and praise him for the eternal things his mercy made possible. The Lord gives the enemy a degree of freedom in order to prosecute those attacks, in order to test our hearts so that we have opportunity to show ourselves faithful. Notice at the end of verse 13, Paul says, here's what's in it for us. He says, we resist the devil in the evil day, which just refers to all the days we live on earth. And we do that, he says, why? Paul says, so that we would have done everything to stand firm. The English translation obscures Paul's point a little bit here. Paul mentions standing, but he says it in the sense of standing for a judgment. He's saying this. Resist the enemy during your days on earth so that at your judgment you can say to God, honestly, I did everything I needed to do in response to the battles you brought my way. And like a soldier returning from the front, you want to report to your your commander, I executed the battle plan as ordered. I can stand for your judgment. I'll see a good outcome. So point number three, we're fighting for a good report at our judgment. So going AWOL in this battle has consequences. It'll have consequences for us now because it means that we have put ourselves in harm's way in this battle. And it may bring consequences in our eternal judgment. So how do you have a good testimony in the face of what could be a very difficult time? Well, you have to be equipped for battle. And Paul uses this convenient cultural reference of his day to illustrate what equipping for this battle will look like. And as some have reported, Paul being in prison at this time, as he wrote this letter in Rome, he was in prison. There's a pretty good chance that he was under guard. And those who would have guarded him would have been Roman soldiers. So the thinking goes that as he's writing this letter, he probably only had to glance up from the parchment to see a Roman soldier dressed just in the way he describes here. And Paul borrows from the details of the soldier's uniform to explain what the armor of God is for every Christian. And he mentions six articles of clothing that are a part of the uniform, and he mentions them in the order in which a soldier would have put them on as they dressed themselves. So as we go through the list, you can imagine a soldier sort of getting dressed for battle, which is what he's asking us to do. The first five in this list are articles that were designed for defense, and then the last one is for offense. Paul begins with the belt. This girding of the loins. He's referring to a sturdy belt that the soldier put around his waist over a linen tunic, sort of his underwear, this linen tunic that went down to near his knees. Then he would have put this belt around the waist, a very sturdy belt, because that belt would then carry the weight of a breastplate. 
and of the scabbard in which he put a heavy sword later. And Paul compares this belt to truth. And in this context, truth refers to the word of God itself, to the truth of God. So our Christian armor starts with the word of God, with truth. Our fight in this battle depends on a spiritual understanding from God's word, part of which you're getting this morning. You're understanding that there is a battle, that there is an enemy, that we have to concern ourselves with this struggle. It's actually the ultimate defense. The ultimate defense against the enemy, who is the father of lies, is to know the truth about anything spiritual. Every other spiritual protection that's in this list, anything else you could name, it depends on that first item of armor, just like the belt was the first thing you put on on which everything else hung. We're like that young man in the field. If you don't know the truth, you're just in shorts and a t-shirt. You have nothing to defend yourself with. And remember, Paul called this God's armor, not your armor. That is, you're seeking to put his truth into your head so that you can respond to trials properly. If you remember nothing else over this Sunday, that's probably the one point worth taking home more than anything else. How well you do in the face of any spiritual attack is directly proportional to your understanding of spiritual things. Your ability to see through the moment and to understand that this isn't what I think it is. These obstacles are not just happenstance. They're a test. Because the moment you think like that, you're much more likely to react knowing that this test demands a certain response rather than just react how you feel to the circumstances. If you feel, friends, like you're losing a battle, if you can sense this in your life and you realize, I'm not doing so well in this battle, then may I suggest, get back into God's word. Get prepared for the next attack. Next, he says, the soldier puts on a breastplate. Big metal thing that hung over the middle part of your body. The breastplate protected all your vital organs. Its main purpose, though, was to defend the soldier against a frontal attack, something coming straight at him. And Paul uses this to picture righteousness. And in this context, righteousness is a reference to your life testimony of obedience to the word, of being an upright person, like Job was, for example. All of us possess Christ's righteousness by our faith in him, and that's the righteousness that puts us in heaven. But having been saved by faith, the Bible says we're called to display our own righteousness through obedience to the word of God. Having been saved by faith, the question is, will I live out in a righteous way from what I know in the word? And Paul says the second most important piece of armor that you have against the enemy is your own personal righteousness. That is, if you harbor personal sin, if you let sin have a perch in your life and you live with it, excusing it, accepting it as just a part of who you are, you're concealing a weakness. And if you let the sin stay there, you can bet the enemy will discover and exploit that weakness sooner or later. He'll mount a frontal assault at you at that point. How many pastors in ministry have come to the end of their work in ministry because of some hidden sin that eventually came out? Don't think the enemy didn't have something to do with bringing that to the foreground. Or it'll expose your weakness in some other way to ruin your testimony. People who have been unable to move forward in their walk because they're too shamed by something in their life. I think there are a lot of Christians who suffer needlessly at the hands of Satan and his army because they leave that breastplate, so to speak, on the ground. They set aside their obedience. And their sin leaves them vulnerable to spiritual attacks. And when those attacks come and they're suffering because of what they've let live in their life, they'll turn around and say, oh, look, the Lord is not protecting me from all these spiritual attacks. But in reality, that person just gave the victory to the enemy anyway. They made room for sin in their life, which gave the enemy opportunity. 
Like we've learned in earlier chapters, we sanctify through a yielding to the Spirit so that He convicts us of what we know our weaknesses are and we come to grips with them. By His power working in us, we turn away from them. And that's one less tool in the enemy's hand. Think about Job again. That was Job's chief defense. Job was an upright, righteous man. Keep in mind, it didn't stop the attack, did it? But what it did do is, in the course of the attack, he was blameless. And as you may know, the story ends with God restoring these things to him in a new way. Thirdly, the soldier put on shoes, Paul says, shoes on his feet. In in that day, it would have been sandals. But the sandals that were worn by a soldier were different than the common man's sandals. They were extra tough, and they were studded on the bottom with sharp nails, which gave them increased traction and sometimes could be used to defend themselves. And it also allowed for armies to march a long distance. They were sturdy in a way that let them go for these long marches, thousand-mile marches. For the Christian, Paul says, these shoes represent the preparation of the gospel. The word preparation can be translated the equipment or the readiness of the gospel. What he's talking about here is being ready to bring the gospel anywhere you go. Like a soldier's marching shoes, the gospel equips us to reach anyone, anywhere, if we're ready to show it to them, if we're ready to present it. So how is this a defense? You remember earlier we said that the enemy is not flesh and blood, but he uses flesh and blood against us? Well, think of it this way. If a Christian is armed with the gospel message, you have the potential to neutralize an enemy combatant. Like, for example, when you share the gospel with someone who wants to persecute you, maybe the Lord will use that presentation to change their heart and turn them over to your side. Perhaps the boss who makes it so difficult for you to study at work one day becomes a believer because you preach the gospel to them, and now they're on your side studying with you at lunch instead of making meetings happen every time you want to read your Bible. I know people who could tell you exactly what I just said from where I used to work. Think about Paul. Wasn't Paul the chief persecutor of the church before he became the chief evangelist of the church? Proof that a defense against spiritual attack is simply to convert the enemy. And then fourth, our defense is a shield of faith. The shield that a soldier carried was wood, uh, usually the full length of their body. So you imagine one that goes about five or six feet high. And then they would cover that wood with leather to make it flame resistant. Because the arrows that were shot at them were often on fire. And as you held that, it was large enough to cover your body, strong enough to absorb the impact of the arrow. You felt the arrows coming, but they didn't hurt you because the wood obviously protected you. Paul says your faith serves a similar purpose. Now, faith in this context is not saving faith, but abiding faith. Abiding faith means living with the confidence to know that God's faithful to his promises, that you have an eternal hope for glory with Christ. Having that mindset, I've said it before, is having eyes for eternity. That's the faith he's talking about here. And that faith is a shield against the enemy's flaming arrows. So what are his flaming arrows? Talking about a satanic attack, a demonic attack, something that's intended to rob you of your confidence. A false teaching that comes into your life, for example, it causes a believer to worry about their eternal security unnecessarily. Or to worry about tribulation. That's a flaming arrow. Or world calamities. Economic distress, the next depression, the next tsunami, the next hurricane. Oh no, the world's falling apart. That's taking away your faithful walk. You're abiding in Christ. Think about Job again. His entire family dies in a disaster. Friends, that's one serious flaming arrow. What did it have as an effect on him? Well, it hit that wood, that faith that he walked with, and it hurt. He felt that impact all the way through, but it didn't go through the wood. 
It didn't extinguish him. He despaired in grief, and yet his faith in God's promises brought him hope and confidence that all is not lost for him and that there must be some eternal good purpose. Even though in the midst of his suffering, he couldn't figure it out. Go read the book. He doesn't understand it either. But it didn't let him go to the point of losing faith. And then finally, verse 17. The soldier dons his helmet as he enters battle. The helmet protects his head, obviously. But Paul makes this comparison in a different way. He's not talking so much about protecting the head. He's using this helmet as a picture of salvation. So he's speaking in terms of cover. That is, something over us that provides spiritual protection. And your spiritual cover is your salvation. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, for our sake, assures us of eternal life. So friends, no matter what comes... No matter what attacks the enemy makes, you have an assurance of resurrection. You're going to have a new body. That new body is going to live forever, without suffering, in a kingdom, serving the Lord, in glory, with none of the prevail that you have in this life now. That's a guarantee. It's coming. With that assured, you can go into the battle with confidence, knowing there's really nothing at stake. You've got nothing to lose. Not if you're thinking with eternal eyes. When you think about being witness for Christ in your workplace, but, oh, I might lose my job, or I might lose my friends. So what? You have eternity. You have the kingdom. You have everything. Maybe you'll even lose your life if you say something about Christ in the wrong part of the world. To die is gain. I end up in the kingdom that much faster. I'm not saying I want to live with a death wish. What I'm saying, though, is I know I already have everything in eternity. It's just a waiting game at this point. I can't lose anything that's coming to me there. And everything I have now that is here, I'm going to lose one day, one way or the other anyway. (laughs) It's a no-lose situation for me. Nothing's at risk. Everything's to be gained by going into the battle. That's a true defense against the enemy, isn't it? They always say in the military, they always will tell you that the toughest opponent to beat on the battlefield is the one that thinks they have nothing left to lose. They won't hold anything back. And they'll go at it with no reservations. That's how we should approach the battle with the enemy. He can't take anything from us. We have nothing to lose. Throw caution to the wind. That has to be the way we look at the enemy. You're covered by a helmet of salvation that says you can't lose. You have nothing to fear. You don't need to fear failing. You don't need to fear embarrassment. You don't even need to fear dying. Those things are nothing in comparison to what you've been assured by faith. As Paul said in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then lastly, the soldier's only weapon of offense, the sword. In battle, a sword is obviously something that pierces, it cuts. It's meant to incapacitate the enemy. Paul says, you and I have a sword. It's the word of God. Did you notice the word of God started the list and it ends the list? The word of God prepares us to defend ourselves against the enemy's attack. But then at times it can become a tool in the hands of the spirit to neutralize our enemy on the offense. Remember Jesus' example in the wilderness when he goes on his 40-day fast in the wilderness? He endured the enemy's attacks by living according to the word of God. And then at a certain point, he turned on the offense and he responded with the word of God to defeat the enemy. And as he did that, what happened to the enemy? He fled. And you can do that too, according to scripture. The enemy is a lot more powerful than we are, but he is nothing compared to the word of God. So if the enemy lies to you, quote the Bible. When the enemy tempts you to seek for wealth instead of serving Christ or some other distraction, well then let the word of God remind you you can't serve two masters. 
When he causes you to doubt God's love, remember that Jesus said that love is laying your life down for another. Christ's already done that. You might have to do that too. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee. So at this point you may have noticed there's one essential element that you might have thought would be in the list, but it's not been in the list so far, and that's prayer. But Paul doesn't leave it unaddressed. Let's finish what he says here. He says in verse 18, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf, that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Paul's instructions in verse 18, when he talks about prayer, it's actually part of the prior verse. More than that, in fact, from verse 14 all the way to verse 20, that's one long Greek sentence. If you're counting, it's the eighth longest sentence in the New Testament. And so you should see that as part of the description of the helmet and the sword in verse 17. In a sense, you could say prayer is the seventh and final part of the armor. And probably because like every soldier who's probably faced war at any point in all history, prayer was an essential part of their battle plan. They've always said there's no atheists in foxholes. I don't think that's literally true, but it simply goes to the point. When you're in that kind of a situation, you look for help. And prayer is the first response often. And he asked the church to think that way too. In the first moment that you recognize spiritual attack, through a person you know, through a set of circumstances, illness, calamities, as you begin to sense the enemy has just taken on a work around me and he's made me a target. He's made our family a target. There'll be several things you could do, but the first thing you should do is you ought to pray, placing before the Lord a petition, Paul says, before the Lord at that moment, a request for intervention. Think of it as the guy on the radio asking for air support. And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that sincerely, because remember what we said a moment ago, knowing about spiritual attacks and what they're really all about is wisdom and power to the one who's enduring it. It reminds you that my response right now is the whole point. God's allowing it for a reason. He's testing me. My response is the question. Is my response going to be fear, anger, denial, or is it going to be prayer? And that difference will determine how the outcome goes in judgment terms. Think about prayer first as your response. Putting your concerns before him. Asking him to rebuke the devil or the enemy's forces. Asking him for strength. I'll tell you right now, this is my personal biggest challenge in any of this. My first instinct is to fight in my own power. To figure the problem out. To solve the problem. Work the plan. Get out of the situation. The dog gets sick. First thought, call the vet. No. Not first thing I should have done. I should have been praying. And I think that's why the Lord gives things to me in that way. I think he's working on me a little bit. He wants to teach me that I haven't quite got the plan down in my response, which may explain why I keep seeing the fight coming back again, right? It's another opportunity. And so if it's his armor, if it's his power to fight the battle... And we appeal to him in prayer. What exactly is our role in all of this? Well, Paul says in verse 18, you do have a part to play, at least in the sense of what you can contribute to the process. And he says each of us is to persevere and be alert. He says it's especially important to remain alert so that we can intercede on behalf of other believers. You can't pray for others who are enduring battle if you don't even notice that they're happening to be in a battle at the time. If you're ignorant of spiritual warfare, how can you be of any help to them, right? 
And there is a battle raging. So we are to remain alert. We are to concern ourselves with why things are happening, not just the fact that they happened. And we are to look past the earthly flesh and blood explanations for why things happen. And we are to give some thought, at least, to whether God is at work in those circumstances for our benefit, which then will naturally lead us to the final step, the persevering step of knowing I've got to approach this moment with the right heart, with the right wisdom, to get the most out of it. I've always thought the biggest shame of a Christian life is someone who endures trial after trial, test after test, never understanding what they're really about, and therefore never gaining the spiritual benefits, eternal benefits that were available. And the saddest thing is they just have to keep going through the test till they pass. I think that's how God does it. He lets us retake the test as often as necessary before we get the point, if we ever do. Finally, Paul asked the church, would you pray for me? He wants them to pray that he would make known the mystery of the gospel to his oppressors. This, remember, is happening while he's in jail. And there's some danger to him in this case, because if he continues to preach as they told him not to, then he's only testing them to follow through and to kill him. He says, I don't care. I want boldness to speak. I need your prayer for that boldness, so that even as a prisoner, I can still be an ambassador. Chains weren't preventing him from serving Christ. Imprisonment in Rome to Paul was just a new way to witness In fact, he did eventually speak. He spoke eventually to the Caesar, to Nero himself. It's implied in 2 Timothy. And probably as a result was put to death. And he says as a result of that encounter, he preached to every Gentile, he says. What he means is he got to the top of the stack before he died. Friends, that's missional living. That's turning even your imprisonment into a mission field. I don't know that God's going to call us to that level of sacrifice. Perhaps not. But we ought to at least be prepared for that possibility, or at the very least, take the everyday things that God puts in our path and use them missionally, shouldn't we? Finally, he closes his letter with a few thoughts, talking about a man, Tychicus, uh, that he sends back to Ephesus to report on his condition. Tychicus had come from Ephesus church originally. I think what he's trying to show them is, just so you know my situation, I'm going to send this man back who will testify to you in ways that my words on this paper can't communicate. He'll be able to tell you I'm in good spirits. He'll be able to tell you that I have not lost my hope. He'll be able to tell you that I'm not despairing, that I have a view of eternity, that the end of my life is not cause for me to be suffering, it's a cause for me to be rejoicing. And as much as he was a witness in life, he wanted to be a witness in death. Friends, sometimes missional living as a Christian will include missional dying, making the most of every moment because the days are evil. May Paul's last words to the church in Ephesus be our daily prayer, Ephesians 6.23. He says, Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Father, you've called us in mercy to know you. You've given us, by your mercy, a place to grow in our knowledge of you, to be comforted and to be encouraged and to be taught. And you have called us by this book and by the rest of Scripture to serve you missionally. And so I pray, Father, that each of us, as we pursue that mission, will be strengthened by the Spirit living in us to be holy and obedient, to be wary and to be on alert for the enemy and his schemes, to resist him, and in doing so, Father, to stand before you on a day to come with a good report. Let this church, Father, have that that outlook in one mind and serve you in one heart. Protect them in the time that they will be here, apart from me, and protect me, Father, as I 
travel apart from them. Watch over each of us in our day as we wait for the longing of seeing you again on this earth face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.